Welcome to the Pirate's Eye Podcast, produced by the Seton Hall Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. I'm your host, Bianca Velez, fellow pirate of the class of 2010, and each month I'll be sitting down with an alumnus to chat about their career, their life journey, and the role that Seton Hall played in getting them where they are today, or continues to play. our pirate's eye on Tila Wittig, a New York City-based software developer and the founder of Represent. Represent is a software company focused on connecting people with their elected officials and providing increased transparency in government at every level. There are so many impressive aspects to Tila's story. For starters, she is just three years out of Seton Hall, having graduated in 2019 with her bachelor's degree in diplomacy. And another thing, she coded the software herself. Not to mention that the future of Represent has the potential to completely transform the way American society consumes and interacts with public policy. So without further ado and with much excitement, here is my interview with Tila Wittig. Tila, welcome to the Pirate's Eye podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. So you are a 2019 grad, so pretty recent in the alumni world and joining the alumni world. I Um, am. I made it out just before the world ended. Yeah, right. You made it out before (laughs) the pandemic. And I'm sure that you're really grateful for that because that absolutely changed the student experience. It even changed the alumni experience. Oh yeah. So you are an active alum, which is no surprise you were an active student. Um, So tell me a little bit more about your life as a Seton Hall student and why you rolled out of Seton Hall and just rolled back in. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I ever really left. In fact, I'm I often am emailing with some people in the alumni office joking about how it's like I never really graduated. Um, but when I was at Seton Hall, I was really involved. Um, and I sort of tried everything. I think I was in like 15 clubs uh, my freshman year. Wow. And none of, <laughs> I know it was too much. All of my friends were like, you're overcommitted, and it shows. Um <laughs> And I sort of really found my home in the Student Alumni Association. Um, And I think I really loved that they were just this presence on campus that was just so excited about being a Seton Hall pirate and inspiring that kind of love and excitement in other people and other students and alumni. Um, So I got really, really involved in that. Um, And then towards the, my senior year, I actually had a work study position. I still can't believe that I got paid for this position um, <laughs> <laughs> where I was basically planning a bunch of the senior class events um, with the university. Um, and so that was like, that was like SAA squared where I was working with the student alumni association. And I was also working with a senior class to sort of celebrate their, their past couple of years as students and transition them into young alumni. Um, in in the most fun way possible. Um, Like we said, it was 2019. So it was right before everybody had to go remote. I'm so glad we didn't have to do that because we had just a blast celebrating our senior year. Yeah, I'm sure Uh, that that transition was was much smoother than the 2020, 2021. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know. Every time I talk to someone who is that 2020 class, um, I'm I'm just like, I'm so sorry because you guys missed out on <laughs> on some fun things. Yeah. Well, you guys are now in the Young Alumni Club, so I, I know you're going to get to that. You guys are trying to make up a little bit for that last time, I'm sure. We definitely are. Um, so the Young Alumni Council is like sort of the rebrand of the Young Alumni Club, and we launched it like maybe a month and a half ago. So it's brand new. Um, and And a lot of what the administration is focused on and what we're focused on is making those first few years as alumni just like really fun and engaging because, you know, we want alumni to be involved and a lot of people graduate without really understanding what the alumni network has to offer. Um, And an easy way to teach them that is to host really, really fun events that people want to go to. Um, So I feel really blessed to be a part of, you know, that side of things where we're just like, we're basically throwing community events to bring people out. Um, so it's been, it's been really fun and we are sort of making up for lost time. Why do you feel still so motivated to stay connected to Seton Hall and at this capacity, right? Because a lot of folks are connected to Seton Hall in that they attend Seton Hall weekend, which just recently passed and they may attend an event for their school or college, but having a role like the one that you have with the council is a different level. Why? So I think there's a couple of reasons. The first thing is that like, I, I have like this really, really deep love for Seton Hall. Um, probably because when I first started, we still had president Esteban and he would make these really phenomenal empowering speeches about how Seton Hall really reaches out to a community that maybe can't afford all of college and provides those scholarships. So I've always had this like really, really deep love for, for Seton Hall and, and all right. of its mission. Um, but also I think, you know, there's Seton Hall weekend and that provides this like great outlet for alumni who are in families and who can bring their kids to the weekend. Um, and I really, I love Seton Hall and want people to love Seton Hall too, but I want to bring them in at, at the age that I'm at. And I think I, I sort of understand what people my age are are looking for. And especially being in the city, like a lot of that is just an opportunity to go out and meet some people who you have something in common with, but you might not necessarily know and feel that sense of community, mm-hmm. uh, even especially in a place where like, you might not have that because it's so massive, you know? Right, right. Now, could you imagine what your Seton Hall experience would have been like without these extracurricular activities like the Student Alumni Association? You know, I think I always would have gotten involved in something <laughs> just because I don't sit still well, but like, <laughs> but I think, I think part of it is just like, it built this crazy love that I have for Seton Hall. And, and I think I would have found that love, but I would have directed it at something else. Um, and I did, I found other organizations that I loved, but you know, I think I had a really unique experience that allowed me to connect to my university in a way a lot of people don't in undergrad. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't connect to it and to the community that that surrounds it after school. Mm-hmm. And so it's a sort of an opportunity to help people do that, I think. I think that's such a good point, right? Because, you know, I often can't look at it from that lens because I, like you, was involved in a, a bunch of things when I was a student at Seton Hall. So coming into my alumni experience, it was just so natural to stay involved with, in particular, the things that the clubs and the organizations that I was involved with as a, as a student. So I was in the Adelante Latino Latina Student Organization. And so yeah. that was so easy. And that was so transformative for me when I was a student. But you're right. 
it doesn't really matter if you were heavily involved as a student leader or in these organizations and clubs. If you weren't, the alumni office has an entire array of opportunities for folks to get involved with Seton Hall even afterward. Yeah, you know, a lot of, so I just met a lot of the council. We had an orientation a couple months ago and that was my first time meeting so many of them. And more than you would think are either graduate or MBA students who went to school during COVID mm-hmm. and they just didn't have the opportunity to connect with with the campus and with organizations because, you know, those were all remote and maybe they had meetings, but it just, you know, it wasn't the same. And so they're looking for that connection to Seton Hall. Like they loved their experience and they're looking to get more involved. And, and I think providing those opportunities is, is so valuable, especially, you know, we have so many alumni here in the area. Yeah. Finding a sense of community is so important. I think, right. To just like overall, overall life. I think folks are always looking for a sense of community. And one of the things that rings true with almost every person that's on this podcast is the sense of community that they felt or they found within Seton Hall. So it's an important, it's an important point. And I, and I love that you're still involved in providing these opportunities to our young alumni, especially those that missed out on a lot in the last couple of years. <laughs> I know we're really working on it. We just started planning for this year because like I said, we're brand new. But hopefully we're we're gonna make up for it. You know, we have lots of exciting events coming up, especially because basketball season is back. Yes. And we have Coach Holloway, which is gonna be amazing. Yeah, and we can exciting. host in-person events. It's the whole trifecta. Yeah, very exciting. Now we talked, we talked a little bit about your extracurriculars at Seton Hall, but you did go to Seton Hall to study. And <laughs> you were, am I right that you were interested or you were in the school of diplomacy? You went to Seton Hall to study diplomacy. Yeah, I I, orig- I actually stayed in the School of Diplomacy the whole time, although that's not the field I work in now. Right, 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 right. That's where my uh, slight confusion is. So you went to school for diplomacy. Talk to me a little bit about that. What was the inspiration behind being part of the, the School for Diplomacy? So I was a really ambitious 17-year-old. I mean, I'm still pretty ambitious, but I was really ambitious back then. Um, and I really wanted to work for the United Nations. Um, and the way I saw it, I was just like, I want to create good in the world. I want to, you know, help solve problems. And that seemed like the best place to start. Um, and Seton Hall recruited me heavy because of that. Um, Seton Hall is such a phenomenal relationship with the United Nations. The School of Diplomacy is very closely tied. Um, and so I sort of started studying that and I loved studying diplomacy. Um, but I think I realized pretty early on that working for the United Nations was not the path for me. Okay. Um, but I, But I love studying it so much. So I stuck with it. Interesting. So you stuck with it, you graduate. And then what does the early start of your professional career look like? So I actually think my professional career really started before I graduated. I had an internship um, at a startup that was like, like the true startup, you know, it was like four people. We sat around a kitchen table um, in an office that we shared space. Um, and I so much fell in love with like the whole entrepreneurship thing. I think that was sort of in the transition of realizing I didn't want to necessarily go into government, um, because we were, we had no idea what we were doing, but we were doing things so quickly. And we had all this autonomy to sort of like test something and figure out if it worked. Um, and I, I really loved that, that environment. Um, but I had it as, it was sort of an internship, but I was doing it like almost full time my junior year. 
Um, and then that startup was acquired. So I, I stopped doing that and finished up school. Um, and then when I was looking into what to do in my professional career, um, I sort of had this experience in financial technology and I used that to start off my professional career. Which leads us to a company that you created called Represent, right? Yes. Yeah. And if I remember correctly from our previous conversation, this is something, this is an app that you coded yourself while still learning coding and coding that you learned through your own pathway, as in you're a self-taught coder. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> I, it's sort of funny looking back. It's one of those things that like took an immense amount of work, but you don't really remember the work. So it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that right there, what I just said was loaded. So I don't even imagine the process to getting there, like clue us in a little bit. So I, I actually talk to a lot of people and a lot of women um, specifically who study social science is a lot of women who actually come from the school of diplomacy and are thinking about moving into a, a career in tech. And the thing I always say is that it's it's so overwhelming that you simply have to either structure your program enough or have enough determination, whatever that means for you, that when you realize the immense amount of stuff you don't know, it's too late to give up and you just have to sort of keep pushing because eventually <laughs> like you'll come through the clouds and it, it won't all make sense, but it'll, you know, it'll be a little more solid. Um, so yeah, so I took the summer off last summer. Um, and I just coded, I just took a, a, an online boot camp that was like totally self-structured. And I just coded for like 10 hours a day all the time. Wow. Um, and it, it was intense, but I'm one of those people that needs to understand like everything, like from the very beginning, what, what a website is, you know, what the internet does, all of that stuff in order to understand the pieces. So I just did like a full stack course and like kind of learned the whole thing, um, and when I made it at the end of it, I was like, I could, I mean, I don't really know all of it, but I could start building something. Now, where did the inspiration come to build represent? And this is such a timely topic as we're rolling into November. Um, and this is very connected to government and our political representation. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to create this product and what this product does. Yeah. Okay. So, so you won't shock anyone now that, you know, I study diplomacy that I'm kind of a political buff. Um, <laughs> and so, um, I've always been really in engaged with, you know, federal politics. Like I, I just follow all of it. Um, and so I was having this conversation with a friend, um, and we were sort of politically sparring, just challenging each other. And he said something about how he thinks that government should be more localized. And I was like, yeah, that's a great valid point. Do you, do you know any of your local representatives? Uh, you know, like a gotcha. And he was like, no, I realized that I didn't really get him because I also didn't know any of my local representatives. Um, <laughs> so I sort of started taking it around to people and being like, do you, do you know your local representatives? And um, I realized that the vast majority of people I asked didn't. And so I went and searched mine and it took me like two hours to find everybody. And I was like, this simply cannot be the system. Mm. Um, and so I sort of took that and started building it. And I, it started out as like, this would be cool as just a tool. Um, and I recruited a bunch of advisors to sort of help me along the way and started building, not really knowing where I was headed. Right. Um, and along the way, I built this product that 
I was like, this is really useful. I actually need to share this with other people, um, which required me to, you know, start a business and, and form all of this stuff around it, which is just, you know, immense amounts of work. So now we launched in April um, as an Apple application on the App Store. Um, you can download it. It's called Represent App. Um, and basically, we take your location and we find all of the elected representatives that impact you, all of the legislation um, at the federal level. And if you're in New York State at the state level, um, that could impact you. And we categorize it using um, some natural language processing AI and sort of put it in like this, this way that you can see what's the actual impact going to be on you. Um, and we flag upcoming elections and give you information about what's going to be on the ballot, all of that kind of stuff. Now, this is really important work, but why did you feel that this would be so important for people to have in the palm of their hand, this information access? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, this is stuff we should know, you know, like it, it's part of holding our elected representatives accountable is mm -hmm. knowing who they are and what they're up to. Right. Um, and I think, I think it's important to bring it in a way that people are going to be able to see it, you know, like I am incredibly busy. I know you're incredibly busy. I simply don't have time to be like logging on to congress.gov and searching through legislation and trying to understand like, you know, legal gibberish in those yeah. documents and trying to look up the reference to document 301 or whatever. <laughs> um, right. You know, it's really not written in a way that's readable. Um, and so that was kind of the idea um, behind making it palatable and making it fun. And, and in thinking about, you know, the applications and the websites that people are really consuming, everybody wants information fast and fun and engaging. Um, and so we're sort of on this process to get legislation in a way that people want to read it, want to interact with it, want to understand what's going on. Now, this is a fairly new product, right? So April, 2022, and you've already developed so much, but how much more is there to develop? Where do you see this going? So there is so much more to develop. <laughs> I, it's it's one of those things where like every stone you turn over, like you realize how many how much more there is to, to go. Right. Um, I at the federal level, they have really great access to data, which is fantastic. Um, okay. and that's that's only happened in like the past couple of years. Um, but at the state level and even worse at the local level, you know, that data is generally not sitting happily in a database in a way mm -hmm. that a technology can consume it. Um, and there are some services that are already consuming it, but a lot of them are taking, you know, full teams of analysts to try and comb through that. Wow. So, you know, as I'm going down this journey, I'm realizing that some of it is building out, you know, scrapers to go pull that data from websites. Some of it is like, it's going to be, uh, you know, petitioning local governments in places I don't even live in to have better data policies so that, you know, local town ordinances or county legislation are getting put on the internet in a way that we can do something with that, you know? This seems like such a large, complex, sticky web. How are you navigating this? It is, you know, sometimes <laughs> I, I like, I look at it, I'm like, this can't be this can't be the government's policy on this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, the the advent of data and the advent of like this massive technology um, infrastructure is, is still so new for so many people and for so many of these governments that everybody's just struggling to keep up. Um, a lot of, a lot of the way I'm navigating it is just like 
thinking about what the next step is um, and trying to to put together the, the first products that'll get me to a place where I can, um, you know, sort of ask VCs for money and then build out a team to keep building those pieces because it is such a massive task um, that it's certainly not something I intend to do alone for long. Right, right. That was actually my next question is, how are you doing this? Are you still working at this as a one-woman show? Are you building partnerships or a team of people? What does that look like? Or, so, or where where in the journey are we? Yeah, so I, I never like doing anything by myself, um, mostly because it's really scary to be the final decision maker um, and <laughs> not have any... <laughs> full stop, but, and not have anyone else to bounce ideas off of. So when I first started out, I sourced people in, and if you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, speaking of always, there are free resources for everything. You just have to Google enough. Mm -hmm. Um, so I sort of sourced people who had expertise in areas I didn't. Um, so I have mentors now, um, a mentor for my coding um, in the language that most of my front end is written in, and a mentor who worked in government relations for years and years. So she's sort of who I ask for, you know, her ideas on everything. Um, so I do, I do have people that I work with on this, but as far as coding, it's still all me. Um, and that's something I've wanted to change for a while, um, just because it, you know, everything moves so much faster if I'm not doing it all on my own. Right. Um, but when it comes down to it, like I'm still at the point where I'm, I'm very, um, what is the word? Like I, I can pivot very well if I need to into whatever I see being the next logical step. Right. Um, and I'm still kind of convincing myself that this is something that we we can and should and will build. So I'd like to bring on another person, but I sort of want to get to a point where I have a product that I really love that I can go to venture capitalists about um, and get the money to bring those people on so that, you know, I'm not asking anybody to quit their job for no compensation at the very beginning. That makes sense. That makes sense that you're still shaping something. And you mentioned, you used the word that I was going to get to next. You have become a complete entrepreneur. And <laughs> I want to ask if you ever envisioned that before actually starting this journey of coding and of this product, when you talk about being that ambitious 17-year-old, you you were thinking of being in the United Nations, but now you're thinking of launching, I mean, not, not thinking of launching, you've launched, and you're thinking of building out this very important product that could transform how people engage with with politics completely. So did you ever envision yourself being an entrepreneur? What is it, what is it like to reflect on the fact that you are one right now? So that's, that's so many questions. The first one, <laughs> it is. Um, yes, I could definitely see myself being an entrepreneur. I think I've always wanted to, um, full disclosure, when I was like five, I lived right next door to a golf course. Um, and the fifth hole turned um, at our tree line. So people would screw up their shots and um, knock the balls over to our side. And we would sell them back to them. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> so okay, so this has been in the making. Okay. So yeah, it's, it didn't shock anyone in my family when I was like, hi, I'm starting a company. Um, but I think to the point of the United Nations, you know, a lot of what turned me in a different direction was that I was like, you know, they, they are doing impressive, amazing work, mm -hmm. um, but it, it does take so much 
diplomacy to to get so many countries on board with you know very specific language and and making these resolutions and making these moves um and i think my experience with startups and you know just kind of my personality in general too like i like to break things and not ask permission and and see how it goes and and sort of have the autonomy to experiment and move fast and do fun things um and so this is much more my speed um but as far as starting a company, I never thought what I would be doing was interfacing with government databases every day. <laughs> that's, that's definitely not where I saw myself at 17. Um, but I think it is really important to, to be exposing as much of that transparency as we possibly can, because, you know, that's, that's how government stays accountable is we keep them accountable. That's right. That's right. I love that. I love that you're sharing your journey with us um, and being yourself fully transparent with where you are and how you've gotten here. It's always interesting to hear someone's journey, especially in the case of someone like yourself building out a company from scratch, building out a product from scratch and kind of all the pieces and all the steps that it takes. And I know that we're not getting a full, a full view, but some of the steps and some of the pieces that it takes to do that. And it's, it's certainly eye-opening because I do think about how you just graduated basically, right? And and you're taking on this, this challenge of, again, creating something that, that could potentially impact politics across the country immensely. Where does, where do you draw from every day? It sounds like this is hard work. It sounds like it's very challenging. It sounds like it could also be, you know, something as, as the story goes with many entrepreneurs, something that you might even put money into before you get money out of. Oh, it certainly is. Right. (laughs) What keeps you going? Where, where, what well are you drawing from? So, so some of it was just that initial frustration with like being so confused how, how, how hard it was to find certain things. Um, and I think I think that well keeps getting refreshed as I dig in and I'm like, you know, I'm searching like, what does action codes look like in like, you know, co- congressional votes? Like, where's the database of what each action code maps to? And like, you find a PDF from 1975 as the explanation and you're like, what? <laughs> um, so, you know, so I think. I think at this point, I'm I'm so obsessed with the challenge of it and, and the possibility of being like, what if we could make this all make sense? And, and then we could run analysis on it and see if we could, you know, predict something or, you know, or even just make it clearer or make kids, you know, better educated about what's going on. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, we look around in the world and there's, you know, you, all you have to do is log into Twitter for like, five whole minutes before you see something about, you know, conflicting narratives in the news. Mm -hmm. And, and I really love that, you know, obviously the government is (laughs) biased in its own fun ways, Sure, sure. Um, but it is, you know, a firsthand account. It is, it's a primary source. And if we're able to expose that in, in a way that is palatable, that's, you know, a good step in the right direction. That's right. Well, I love that. And I want to ask, what words of advice do you have for someone who maybe has an idea and wants to bring that idea to fruition as you have, or any young pirate that might be listening? What would you offer? 
I think, I think I read this in, um, a book called the hard thing about hard things. Um, but don't quote me on that if you're fact checking <laughs> unless you're listening. Um, but it was talking about um, what it takes to be an entrepreneur, and you know, listed a bunch of traits that show up on every single one of those blog posts about being an entrepreneur. And one of the things that it talked about was stick to ofness, which mm-hmm. I don't think is a word, but it plays mm-hmm. over in my brain literally all the time. Um, which is just that if you're gonna do something, and this is not to say beat an idea into the ground if it's a bad one. But if you're going to do something, um, you know, you start talking about it and people respond pretty positively and they're like, that's really cool. You should build that, you know, just keep doing it until, you know, you absolutely like you need to give up or, or you can't anymore. And in which case call one of your mentors and they'll talk you down from the ledge. Um, but you know, most of doing something impactful, I think is just sticking with it long enough to see what works and what doesn't work and making changes along that journey and not giving up when it starts getting hard because there's so many points where it's hard you know yeah yeah I can imagine (laughs) and I love that you mentioned mentors right because I think that is such an important piece to not only one's development when when you're in college or in high school as a young person but even further down the road folks have mentors people have mentors for the length of their life really at in some cases and it's a very scary road to take on these types of projects or even to try to go to new heights within one's career. So the fact that you're mentioning mentors and how you rely on them, I think it's a really important point. Yeah. You know, I, I think mentors are, are one of those things that's like, it's very confusing if, if you're just looking to build them. Mine, I, I've always thought of as like, you know, they're giving me so much value because they have all of this experience and knowledge um, and and thinking about the value that I can offer them. And a lot of that is just like, you know, building something that's exciting and, and coming them with real questions and really appreciating their expertise. Um, and I actually had a really phenomenal experience with one of my mentors recently where he was promoted and was working. He's been coding, uh, helping me code on a, on a software he doesn't really understand. Um, he was just promoted to manage teams that were using languages he didn't understand. And he was like, you know, working with you for the past two years has been like really helpful in getting here um, and, and being able to work with this team. And I, I looked back on it, it was like, you know, it feels so nice to work with someone who like you've been, you know, getting value from for so long and realized that you were also giving that value. Right. Um, so it's, I find having those mentoring relationships just like incredibly, you know, valuable and also like kind of empowering in these, in these types of situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Tila, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. I love hearing your journey. I love hearing your enthusiasm, both for Seton Hall and for the work that you're doing. And I absolutely look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll definitely keep you updated. All right. And we'll be sure to put the information about your app in our show notes so that folks can go check it out. Great. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Tila Wittig is one of more than 100,000 alumni who demonstrate what great minds can do with a Seton Hall education. Remember to stay up to date with all of Seton Hall's alumni engagement opportunities and to view recordings of past virtual events that you may have missed, visit 
www.shu.edu slash hall hub. Share the news of this podcast with your friends. Be sure to follow us on social media at Seton Hall alumni. And of course, if you know of a pirate we should have our eye on, do not hesitate to email us at alumni at shu.edu. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Seton Hall Pirate's Eye podcast. It's our favorite season of the year. That's right, it's basketball season. So join the Pirate Nation for pregame receptions and game watches all season long. We invite you to gather with fellow Pirates at the Prudential Center, your regional area, or during a game watch to cheer on the Seton Hall men's basketball team. To learn more, visit www.shu.edu forward slash home of the hall. And you can also click the link in our show notes.